I invite you to make your way to the Gospel of Luke chapter 12 and verse 8. Uh, we're going to consider today uh, verses 8 through 12 as we work our way through this passage. So if you'll find it, I'll join you here in just a moment in a message entitled, Unashamed of the Son of Man. There's a study that was conducted on the spiritual habits and attitudes of 1,000 pastors and 4,000 Protestant churchgoers in North America. Researchers identified eight attributes that are common to spiritually mature Christians. Among them is the attribute of being unashamed. The idea of a measure of how believers feel about sharing their faith. To be unashamed in a positive sense uh, biblically, is to act openly in your faith without embarrassment. Obviously, it can be used negatively as well. But we're thinking about today what it means to be unashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be bold in both living out our faith and talking about our faith in the Lord. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Paul was a man who was not ashamed to present the gospel to the world. And the reason he was not ashamed was because his own life had been transformed by it. He believed that everybody needed to hear the gospel, whether it was kings or politicians, lawyers, doctors, uh, people from every walk of life. He believed that they needed to hear about Jesus. And the transformation that the gospel brought about in his life led him to be willing to lay it all on the line because he thought other people needed to experience the peace that is found only in the Lord. So I ask you today, has the gospel transformed your life in such a way that you're willing to lay it all on the line so that other people can experience the same peace and the same life transformation that you have experienced in him? Are you living so that you are unashamed of the Son of Man? In our study in the Gospel of Luke, in the verses immediately preceding this, Jesus taught on the issue of accountability. Everything that uh, flows out of our lives as disciples of Jesus comes from a faith relationship with God. Everything that we do, who we are, how we live, the words that we say, they all should be connected back to this faith relationship that we have with him. So what Jesus did was he warned about the judgment to come for people to get ready. He warned about the importance of avoiding hypocrisy and being genuine before the Lord and not trying to hide things, but being transparent. We should have a reverential fear of God because God alone has power over all of eternity. He's the one who holds life and death in his hands. And yet God cares about every detail of your life. He values you as one who has been created in his image. He cares about every circumstance of your life. Now the passage before us in this moment deals with two primary issues. Confession or acknowledgement of the Lord, the Son of Man, and denial or disowning of the Son of Man. The first issue is the importance of confessing or acknowledging the Son of Man. And if you confess the Son of Man, 
he will confess you. Luke chapter 12 and verse 8. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the Son of Man, also will confess before the angels of God. To confess is to acknowledge. The emphasis is essentially on what it means to be saved. And we're presented all at once with a stark reality that people are either eternally saved or they're eternally lost. Right now in this world, every single person that is living and breathing, they are either saved or they're lost. There's no middle ground. There's no middle option. People either know the Lord or they don't. These are the only spiritual possibilities. Now remember our theme in Luke's gospel, chapter 19 and verse 10, where Jesus said, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We're told that God sent his only son and the purpose for which his only son came is to seek and to save the lost. So the bottom line is God wants lost people to be saved people. God wants people who are far away from him to be brought near to him. God wants people who are deep in their sins to be forgiven of their sins. He wants people who are on their way to hell, hopeless and helpless apart from him, to be on their way to heaven and to have peace that comes only from him. And that's where the good news of the gospel comes in. Now, in Romans chapter 10, the apostle Paul contrasted the righteousness that is based on the law with the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. And in doing so, he was dealing with essentially the same issue that Jesus was relating in Luke chapter 12. Jesus was dealing with the failure and the misunderstanding of the Pharisees of what righteousness was and where it came from. And we understand that the only way to be saved is to trust in Jesus, the Son of Man. He's the only one who perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He's the only one who was qualified to die for our sins. He's the only one who has overcome death, hell, and the grave. So we can say with confidence today that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He's the only way that we can come to God. And the confession Jesus speaks of is an open profession of faith. So what does it mean to confess the Son of Man? And what is Jesus referring to here? Well, in part, to confess is to believe. After Paul outlines the difference between righteousness in the law and righteousness by faith, he goes further in Romans 10 and verse 6, and he says, But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Understand, human effort is not necessary for or capable of gaining the righteousness of God. God has done it all. It was God who sent Jesus. It was Jesus who died for our sins. It was God who raised Jesus from the dead. And when the Bible says that the word is near you, that's meaning, that's indicating that the word is near you so that you can have faith and believe. It's so that you can know God. 
And then he continues on in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's a definition here of saving faith. Belief and confession that are directly connected. You remember at one point in his ministry, the Apostle Paul was thrown into a jail cell with Silas in the city of Philippi. They had been preaching the gospel, lives were being changed, People who were making money off of the idolatry of the city were not happy at all. And Paul and Silas were attacked. And the Bible says that they were beaten with rods before they were thrown into that jail cell. Along about midnight, they're singing hymns in the prison. They're lifting up praise to God and God sends an earthquake. And when God sent that earthquake, it rocked the place. And the Philippian jailer thought that the prisoners had escaped. Now, it would have been a serious thing to have prisoners under your watch. You're responsible to the Roman government. All of a sudden, they're nowhere to be found. You would have been subject to the penalty of death. But probably before you got killed, you were going to suffer quite a bit. So the jailer just decides he's going to do it himself. And he draws his sword, and he's about to take his own life. Paul cries out to him loudly to keep him from doing so and to reassure him that everybody's still there. And the man runs in trembling and he falls down before Paul and Silas and he asks this question the most important question that anybody could ask on this side of eternity sirs what must I do to be saved Acts chapter 16 and verse 30 sirs what must I do to be saved now it's interesting that Paul and Silas had been in that area for many days showing the people the way to salvation representing Jesus as the, and presenting to them the one true living God. I think it's quite possible, though the Bible doesn't give us commentary on this, that the jailer might have heard something about Jesus during that time, either firsthand or through neighbors or friends or other people in the city. He had certainly heard them singing and praising God there while they were there in the jail cell. And he asked this question in a moment of desperation, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the answer comes back, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And then verse 31 says, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. Let me ask you this question. Do you need to be saved? today. We cannot assume in a group this size, or certainly maybe people who are listening online or people who might listen to this message later on, we cannot presume that everybody has been saved. We go about life a lot of times that way. We live as though everybody's saved. We don't share our faith as we should. We don't profess our faith as boldly as we ought to. We think somehow that it's all going to work out in the end. But I'm asking you today, here in this moment, do you need to be saved? If you need to be saved, you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Because to confess is to believe. 
And then I would say that to confess is to identify. After Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer, immediately he took them that same hour of the night and he washed their stripes. Remember, they had been beaten with rods. And his act of caring for these servants of God was in and of itself a symbol of his own repentance and his life change. He wanted to make sure that they had what they needed. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and his household. And verse 33 says, immediately he and all his family were baptized. So what happened here? The man asked the right question, no doubt under the conviction of God. The servants of God gave the only answer, and that is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. They taught the word of the Lord. No doubt they expanded on the gospel as they were talking to the man and to his household. They all believed and immediately they were baptized. They identified their lives with Jesus. Now, when we think about believers' baptism, we recognize it as the initial way that a person publicly identifies with and confesses Jesus as Savior and Lord. Baptism illustrates the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In fact, being immersed in the water represents death to sin, and being raised from the water represents being raised to walk in the newness of life. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4 is not a passage on water baptism. It's speaking, I believe, more towards spiritual baptism. But the scripture says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So in the church, what we do is we, in obedience to the Great Commission, baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, because that's what Jesus told us to do. When people come to faith in Christ, they confess him as Savior and Lord. The initial way that they do that is through public identification with Christ and being baptized in believer's baptism. So my next question for you is, do you need to confess Jesus as Savior and Lord publicly by identifying with him in believer's baptism? We have some people waiting right now who are going to be baptized here in just a few weeks. And as God moves in your heart, if you know that you have Jesus Christ in your life, that you've repented and believed in him, or if you're taking that step of faith today, when this service is over, you can come and you can let me know. You can say, Pastor, I've trusted the Lord. I'm, I'm a disciple of Jesus, but I need to be baptized because I want to confess my faith publicly. And we invite you to do that in obedience to Jesus. Baptism as a confession is an outward testimony of an inward change in your life. Baptism is not a requirement for salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but it is the first step of obedience as a disciple. It is also the way that we publicly identify with the bride of Christ, which is the church. Through baptism, we identify with his church. And then to confess is to testify, is to believe, is to identify, and is to testify. Public confession of Jesus on earth leads to heavenly confession by Jesus. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible is the story of Stephen, one of the early deacons. You remember Stephen, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he was bold in his faith in Jesus. 
He was falsely accused of blasphemy against Moses and against God. He was attacked. He was dragged out of Jerusalem to be stoned, stoned and to be killed. And at his moment of death from persecution, as Stephen was in the ultimate crisis of death, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. Acts chapter 7 and verse 55 and 56 says, But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What a moment it must have been. Here was this man who believed his faith was genuine. He believed in the gospel. He had been saved. He stood there and he boldly preached the gospel of Christ to these people. They were offended because he was preaching the gospel. Remember, the gospel was a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And because they were offended by what he was saying, they took him out of the city and they were getting ready to kill him. And in that moment, he could have easily shrunk back from his faith. In that moment, he could have easily not been bold in his testimony. But in that moment, he looks up into heaven. And what does he see? None other than a vision of the Son of God who has risen from his proper place seated at the right hand of God. And the Son of God, the Son of Man, has risen from his seat and he's looking down on Stephen. And he's getting ready to receive him into his presence. F.F. Bruce, the commentator, said Stephen had been confessing Christ before men. And now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God. Do you know there can be no better testimony on our behalf than the testimony of Jesus? There can be no better testimony on our behalf than the one who lived and died and now lives again. There can be no better testimony on our behalf than the Son of God who is in heaven, who lives to make intercession for us, who is our advocate before the throne of God, who was willing to give his life so that we could be forgiven and saved. He's the one who gives the ultimate testimony. But our testimony, our confession is confirmed by him. And we testify for Jesus by the way we live our lives, without hypocrisy, by sharing the good news with others. And I believe faith and a verbal testimony go hand in hand. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 13, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. The second issue before us focuses on the consequences of denial of the son of man deny the son of man and he will deny you verse 9 but he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of god to deny means to disown denial of the son of man is when we refuse to acknowledge him publicly with our words or our actions. Denial is rooted in being ashamed rather than living as unashamed. And Jesus has already said in Luke chapter 9 and verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. And I want you to understand that at its root, denial is unbelief. Now remember, Jesus divided people into just two groups. 
Those who confess him and those who deny him. Those who confess him have Jesus abiding in them. You cannot communicate what you do not possess. Denial is a confession of an altogether different kind that you do not know him. So when challenges come to your faith, what's your response? When the pressure is on, what's your response? When the ridicule comes, what's your response? When the challenges to your faith come, what is your response? It could be from your family. It could be in a classroom. It could be in the workplace. It could be in your community. Do you stand with Jesus and with the Bible or do you give in to the culture around you and the pressure that is on you? I am absolutely convinced that more and more we will face tests of our faith. It is undisputed that Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world. In fact, more people are persecuted for Jesus today than at any other time in human history, just by the sheer number of the population. Millions of Christians face intense persecution, and yet millions of Christians are willing to live boldly and risk their very lives for the sake of the gospel. There's a study by Pew Research entitled, Religious Persecution is Worsening Worldwide. And in that study, they chronicled some of these things, but they found one interesting thing that stood out to me. They said, in spite of the fact that persecution is greater than it's ever been worldwide, it is not stopping the growth of the church. Now, folks, think about that. People's lives are at risk. Their livelihoods are at risk. Their families are at risk. And yet it's not stopping the growth of the church. Why is it not stopping the growth of the church? Because Jesus himself promised that the gates of hell itself could not stop the church. There is nothing that will stop God's kingdom advance. There is nothing that can stop the power of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing that can stop God from transforming people's lives in Jesus. And he's going to continue to use his church to do his work. You might have heard of the name uh, Reverend Lawan Andimi. There's a story that came out just a little bit earlier this year at the beginning part of 2020. He went missing, this pastor did, in Nigeria just after the first of the year. It turns out Boko Haram, the radical Islamist, had captured him. They wanted a ransom. And his captors released a video of him in which he said he was not discouraged. Now listen to this. He said, because all conditions that one finds himself in is in the hand of God. By the grace of God, I will be together with my wife and children and all my colleagues. If the opportunity has not been granted, maybe it is not the will of God. He was subsequently beheaded. D.D. Loggison with Save the Persecuted Christians said, they have slaughtered him in the Sambisa forest. They murdered him because he refused to renounce his faith. 
when the trouble comes, will we confess or deny the Lord? If faith in Jesus is the only way that your sins are forgiven, and you reject Jesus by denying him, there's no other way left to be forgiven. That's what the Scripture indicates. If you reject Jesus, finally and fully and unrepentantly, what you have done is you have rejected the only way to salvation. So while denial is unbelief, he takes it a step further in verse 10, and he tells us that denial is actually blasphemy. Verse 10, and anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now, admittedly, this verse has been the subject of much confusion uh, surrounding the topic of the quote-unquote unforgivable sin. Blasphemy, from a general standpoint, is defiant irreverence, generally speaking. The term can refer to sins such as cursing God outright or cursing the things that are related to God. Uh, It can also apply to attributing evil to God or denying good that has come from God, that it in fact has come from him. And that's essentially the situation that was going on with the life of Jesus was they were saying in the miracles and the things that he was performing that he had a demon himself. And not only did he have a demon, but he was performing these works by the power of Beelzebub. And that's when Jesus gave the discussion about a house divided against itself cannot stand. And he's just talking about the absurdity of the whole thing. But the blasphemy of the Holy, against the Holy Spirit is, I think, ultimately referring to the final rejection of the revelation of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And here's why I think that. Uh, the Holy Spirit has the primary role of shining the light on Jesus, of lifting up Jesus, of making Jesus known. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts us, the Bible says, of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. So if it were not for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, we'd not know that we were lost. If it were not for the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, we could not be saved. If it were not for the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we could not live by the power of God. So he has this role that's been given as the third person of the Trinity, uh, eternally God, part of the Godhead, to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. To resist that conviction and willfully remain in unbelief is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's evidenced by attributing things to God as evil or not attributing good to God that has come from him, but it is ultimately the root of unbelief. John chapter 3 and verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. And he says, This will not be forgiven, according to verse 10. Now, verse 11 and 12. Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. Verse 12, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit as our helper. 
And at no time do we more need the Holy Spirit as our helper than when the pressure's on, than when the temperature is turned up. This is not an excuse for the lack of preparation by a preacher or a teacher of the Word. Uh, This is not an excuse for the believer not to be rooted and anchored in the Word and ready to give a defense and answer for the hope that is in us. But rather, it is a promise of divine provision for embattled servants of God who desire to be faithful to Jesus. Kind of like when they hauled Peter and John before the Sanhedrin for healing a man in the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 4 and verse 13 says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I believe that's the key. Being with Jesus. Him abiding in us and we abiding in Him. He's the vine and we are the branches. Our Father is the vine dresser. And if we profess to follow Jesus as His disciple, but do not confess Him... Uh, as an unashamed people, then we are no better than hypocrites who lack a proper fear of God and who have forgotten the incredible care of God for us in every aspect of our lives. And I want you to remember that trouble is not just a possibility when you serve and live for Jesus. Trouble is to be expected. We go through this life as though we should not encounter any challenges. Friends, we're engaged in a battle between light and darkness. And when you're engaged in a battle between light and darkness and good and evil and heaven and hell, you can expect that there's going to be some friction. There's going to be some conflict. There are going to be some challenges. But yet God promises that he'll give us what we need if we're in him, if we trust in him. And I'm convinced that there are some things that are worse than death itself. Kind of amazing to me, in fact, to watch some professing believers who say they believe in Jesus and are certain of heaven and believe the Bible, and yet they live in constant fear of everything rather than living in fear of God. You do remember that the Scripture says to live is Christ and to die is gain. If that's true, if to live is Christ and to die is gain, then as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and we seek after Christ and God gives us what we need and we cultivate our relationship with him and we grow in him, then what God will do for us and in us is he will give us a holy confidence. And we will be able to build our lives on such a firm foundation that even though we might not like the circumstances that we're experiencing, we might not understand the circumstances that we're experiencing, we might not have the answer to how we're going to get out of them, we know that the grace of God is sufficient in every aspect of life. And if the grace of God is sufficient, then what else could we need? You've probably heard the name Corey Tinboom. She was a Dutch Christian who along with her family, courageously hid Jews in their home during the Second World War to protect them from the Germans. Her family was betrayed, ultimately, and handed over to the Germans. And they were put in the infamous, notorious Ravensbrück concentration camp. During her time there, Corey lost both her father and her sister. But in spite of her loss... She did not lose her grip on God. When she finally was released from the camp due to what was noted as a clerical error, which we know was the providence and the sovereignty of God, 
She would reflect on the fact that God had given her the strength to endure and supplied sufficient grace as she needed it. You see, Corey had learned by her own testimony to trust God in the midst of death early on in life. When she was a young girl, she witnessed the death of a baby and she was confronted with the fragile nature of life. Shaken by the experience, she burst into tears and sobbed to her father, I need you. You can't die. You can't. And seeking to comfort and counsel his frightened daughter, Corey's father sat down beside her and gently said, Corey, when you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you the ticket? She sniffled a little bit and replied, just before we get on the train. Exactly, her father responded. And our wise father in heaven knows when we're going to need things too. Don't run ahead of him, Corey. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and find the strength that you need just in time. You see, Corey Tinboom learned something that day that would hold true throughout the rest of her life. God gives us the grace that we need in the moment, just as he provided the manna to his people in the wilderness. He overflows his grace to us in the moment of our need. Let's bow our heads together just as we pray. I wonder how has God spoken to you through these words of Jesus? Are you living your life in such a way that you are confessing the Son of Man unashamedly before a watching world? Are you abiding in Him If you are, would you just take a moment and thank God for his grace that is sufficient and overflowing in your life, that he provides to you in your moment of need? But I know enough to know that uh, there's probably some folks listening to this message that to this point have denied Jesus and need to be saved. You say, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his invitation. He's asking you to turn from your sins and turn to him in faith. Maybe there's somebody here that's already believed, or you might be taking that step of faith right now in this moment. But you've never publicly identified your life with Jesus in believer's baptism. We're going to have that opportunity coming up in December. I wonder, would there be somebody that would say, I need to be unashamed and I need to be baptized? We're going to give you the opportunity to let me know that as the service concludes or even after. Or maybe you're watching or listening to this message online or later on and you you just want to contact me and say, Pastor, I, I know that I need to be bold in my faith. How's God working in your life in this moment? Jesus, We thank you this day that you have lived and died and now live again, that we might have everlasting life. We thank you that you're the one who bears testimony on our behalf, that we are your disciples. We long for that day when we will be in heaven with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that Revelation 7-9 vision gathered around the throne of God, bringing praise and glory to the Lamb. 
But in the meantime, you've left us here with a purpose. And that is to make you known, Jesus, so that others might know you. And I pray that you'd find us faithful. So we give this time of closing response over to you, our Father in heaven. We ask, Father God, that you would bless and work through it in Jesus' name. Amen.